We're going to finish up verse 18. Today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Verse 18 says, the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy in a letter, young Pastor Timothy, pastor of the Ephesian church, this charge or this command I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now here's the context, and this was very similar to what Jesus did, uh, the way the Apostle Paul's discipleship is. He would disciple, he would encourage, he would let his men that he was discipling go off and uh, see how they did. Then he would catch up with them and he would encourage them again because some difficult things were, were, gonna, were going to come. And he says, in this charge, I commit to you, son, Timothy. We spoke about that bond, like a spiritual father to a spiritual son. And when there's somebody who's putting their hand on your shoulder and saying, I believe that you can do this. You know, you, I've discipled you. We have a bond together. This is something that the Lord has called you to do. And, you know, it is really awesome because we do get our encouragement from the Lord. But it's also nice for those that are around us that are sort of like uh, spiritual parents to encourage us on saying, I know that you can do it. So the first thing we see is according to the prophecies made concerning you. Now, starting from the Old Testament, uh, when a person was anointed into service. Now, these are a lot of cultural things that we're not familiar with. But if we go and we read our history books and we read our Bible, we can see these things come alive. So if somebody was to lay hands on a young man or a young lady and anoint them into service, oftentimes God would give them a word of knowledge about that person, maybe about their future. What's amazing, when Jesus was in the temple, Simeon also prayed over, the, the, over Christ as he was a baby, and he said, this child will, be, uh, will, will cause many to rise and fall in Israel, and how true that was. So going through to the New Testament in Timothy, we're not really exactly sure all the things that were said, but there were prophecies when uh, Timothy was called into service. Now, I would say this as well, as to see new believers when they come to the faith, there's God, God shows me things. And I may say, you know, you're going to be destined to be a great evangelist. I can see that spirit in you. Even though they may be just newly saved or they're learning or they're maturing, God will show us something that will come down the road in the future. And it's really neat. So almost to say to Timothy, this is a God thing. God is going to strengthen you here. The second thing we see is that he says, by them, the prophecies, you may wage the good warfare, or as we've heard in other translations, fight the good fight of faith. Now, when you study warfare, there are many great leaders that when a battle is almost lost, the leader rallies their troops, and he gets them so encouraged and so excited that the battle actually turns in their favor. Right? So we can see this in a spiritual sense as well. In the spiritual realm, believers may see that when they are set forth for a task, that things can be very difficult. And they realize very quickly that they're no match for the forces of evil that are trying to stop them. And it can demoralize the troops, so to speak. But the Apostle Paul is basically saying, listen, these prophecies were made concerning you. God started a good work in you, and he's not going to leave you hanging. 
He's going to be with you all the way up until completion. You just have to trust him. And, you know, in, in our lives, we may look at that and we may be in the middle of something so difficult and say, I, I can't see it. I, I don't believe it. Right? But if God starts something in you, he will be very sure to finish that work in you as well. Some today may be fighting the good faith, right? the good fight of faith. Some today may be a little demoralized, tempted to give ground. But through this message, I would ask you to be encouraged. Let the word encourage you. Reinforcements are coming. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God's promises in the word. You know, you have others around you that can come alongside of you. That's all we need. In the Greek, the word for fight is actually strat-uomai, where we get the word strategy from. Now, notice, it doesn't say to fight every fight. <laughs> Some of us can be a little pugilistic. You know, you want to take on every battle. But the Lord has not called us to be pugilistic. That's a lot of laughter here, so there's a few of you in here. But the bottom line is, when you even look going back to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they would take on battles, and they would lose. And the scripture would tell us, the Lord was not in that battle. So we need to pray, we need to see what the Lord wants us to do, but not to just conquer everything. I mean, that's not what we're called to be as Christians. The third point here is he says, Timothy, have faith and a good conscience because some have rejected it and suffered shipwreck. So now the Apostle Paul moves from positive reinforcements, and now he's giving them a negative example here. He names names. And we, we, we can kind of look at this in, in, and compare it to the Christian culture and say, is this gossip? Does the Apostle Paul get away with it because he's an apostle? He's naming their names. Should they have sued him for libel, for putting their names in print? Of course not. You see, this is culture shock. And sometimes, and I hear some of the old-time preachers that say, we've become soft on sin. We've become soft as a church on those spreading evil in the church. Maybe too concerned about numbers. It's a numbers game. Or if, we, if I discipline someone, they won't tithe or they won't give money. That is the wrong motives. We have to deal with evil in the church. He calls it out. And the whole uh, understanding for this is that it elicits a response of repentance and restoration. And what does that mean? Repentance. To see yourself and, gee, I, I did something pretty nasty. I can't believe it. Somebody pointed it out to my attention. They showed me in scripture, I need to stop. I need to change. I'm sorry. And have fruits of repentance. And then to be restored by the church. To be lifted up again and put back into fellowship. Some may be quick to write a letter or send a card, but you damage someone if you don't give them time to sit in it for a while. There was years ago, and I'll, I'll use uh, generalities, many years ago, a man who was a leader in a church who uh, had an adulterous situation, and he left his wife. And the pastor said, don't contact him. He needs to be out of fellowship. But sure enough, people will call him. I'm praying for you, sending him scriptures. Cut it off. You know, the man never went back to his wife, and it started to go, and it started to spill over into other family members. Again, I'm trying to speak in generalities here. It's not a good thing. Cut him off, and, and we'll, we'll cover this. Now, I've rarely had to say to those who resist repentance that if you continue this behavior, you give, you're giving me permission that once you leave the church or once I remove you from a ministry to say why I removed you. So if you continue to do this, your actions have consequences, right? Some spill the beans right away and don't wait until you catch them. 
And right away, it opens the door for confidentiality and restoration. Others have a catch-me-if-you-can attitude, like spoiled children, and it happens in the church. Now, if this is the same Hymenius in 2 Timothy, which we're going to cover, he spread a few things that were uh, doctrinally incorrect. He spread to the other Christians that the resurrection had already passed, they were fearful, they were frightened, this stuff spread to other churches, and the Apostle Paul had to correct it. Now, instead of uh, doing what he should have been doing, he's spending time trying to correct these errors in the church. Today, it's even worse, though. Today, you can write a book about how hell doesn't exist, and it could become a bestseller. So uh, we, we live in a culture where this stuff is in your face, but it's still wrong. Although we, you know what happens? It's called desensitization. Over a while, you start to just tolerate it. You see it so often that you think it's normal. It's not normal. And then when we read the scripture thousands of years ago, we're shocked by what we read. But I submit to you, he's right, our culture is wrong. We're going to go through some examples. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 is a parallel scripture. The Apostle Paul says to deliver a one to Satan, to have the flesh destroyed, but the goal is to have the spirit saved in judgment. If a person leaves in sin, in unrepentant sin, and they're in delusion, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, and they never come to repentance and they never come to restoration, the Apostle Paul says it's better to destroy their flesh. It's better for their feelings to be hurt. It's better for them to feel isolated. It's better to feel ashamed than for them to be self-deluded all their lives and Jesus say, I never knew you. So the goal is really not how we feel. And everything today is based on feelings. The goal is that our spirit is saved and that we, we go to live an everlasting life with, with other believers and God. Today, some may even thumb their nose and hop to another church. And that just shows that there's a lot of shallowness in the body of Christ in Western Christianity. Now, I'll tell you, Pastor Paul and I come from the school of Pastor Luis, who has been here before. And boy, this guy, he wounds, he wounds you. I mean, he was a discipler. He still is. And he goes with the proverb of 27.6, I believe. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And he would say, I know how to wound people, but the thing, it was for our betterment. And we didn't run away like cowards. We, we stood there and we faced the music and we had to change because of it, right? Verse 20, he says, I delivered them to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme. What does this mean? If we take it all together, it shows us that there's certain type of spiritual protection that we get from being in the local body of believers, right? I mean, that's just what it comes down to. And, and there are some that have even said, boy, I feel so much at peace here, and they keep saying it, and I, I have to tell them, listen, I'd put a cot for you downstairs, but I don't think fire code would allow it, you know what I'm saying? But there is a blessing of being in the local fellowship. Uh, I would see this on a regular basis in our church. God is doing great things, and he's not doing it because of me. He's doing it because he blesses the assembly of the believers. There are some that even say, I haven't been to church for a while, and I'm so glad I came today because the message blessed me, and I got to see my friends, and I'm in fellowship. Why did I, ever, why did I stop coming for a few weeks? It's only a, a, a design by the devil to keep us isolated, to keep us out of fellowship. That's his design, not God's. Some will go back to the vomit of the world, as we covered on Wednesday night in Second Peter. They'll go back to their old life. They'll dabble in the things of God, and then they'll flee back into the world, right? and only to find out in a few months that they're really in, bad sh in a bad way. They're in bad shape. 
Now, the Apostle Paul says, when he says, I taught them to learn uh, not to blaspheme. This word learn also has an aspect of learning by discipline. So it's almost like he's training them. So keep that in mind. Now, we're going to jump to chapter 2 here. He says, therefore, I exhort first, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, he says, therefore, there's a connecting word there. I'm going to ask you to take the, the chapter delineations and put them out of your mind because they came centuries later. Chapter delineations were not by the Apostle Paul or Peter or Jesus. Uh, it was something later to help to, you know, I guess, group the passages together. So put that aside. He says, therefore, because of the world's sin getting into the church, because I've had to call out these two men that have left the faith and have caused destructions, Timothy, pray, pray, and pray. And this is one of the greatest weapons that we have in our spiritual arsenal. So let's look at the elements. Number one, prayer. He says supplications. Supplications are basically a request for a need or really coming to God for a a real filling, a deep spiritual desire that you want filled. Two, he says prayers. Now these are prayers in general. What is prayer? Well, some some think that they memorize, even Jesus said, when he talks about our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, he said pray in like manner. He didn't say memorize it and say it over and over again. Prayer is an act of worship and an act of communication with our God. It's how we, we, we fellowship. It's how we commune with him. Three, intercession. Now, again, some of these have overlapping meanings. Uh, intercession can be to mediate for someone else, to intercede, or intercession can mean just really a drawing near to God. And four, giving of thanks. This has an aspect, again, of praise and worship, appreciation, gratitude. Now, when we go through this, we see that prayers, there's many aspects to how we communicate with God as we have many aspects of how we deal with each other. Now, there's an acronym called ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adoration should be the first thing when we approach God. we, We adore him. We worship him. Two, confession. That's usually the thing that causes the problem of communication with us and God is our sin that's outstanding. So we confess our sin to God. Three, thanksgiving. I mean, we can all be thankful for something that the Lord has blessed us with. And four, supplication. You know, some people, they pray and they go right to the celestial wish list. You know, it's like the Santa Claus list. Here it is, God. I got to go, you know. But the truth is, supplication really should come last. Now, this isn't a formula, but this is a mindset. This is a lifestyle. Verse 2. He says, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So he speaks about what we need to do inside the church, and he also speaks about how our behaviors really spread to the outside of the church. Uh, Some in the religious community at the time were so focused on what happened in the fellowship that they really ignored the world outside. And Jesus changed that mindset. And we see that with the Apostle Paul as well. So we're to pray for kings. Well, we don't have a king, but we have a president or any in authority. Why should we pray for them? Because according to Romans 13, that the government is designed to keep the peace, to keep order. 
starting with the president and the Congress and the military and the police and, you know, state, local governments. It's so that we can live, according to the scripture, a peaceable and quiet life in godliness and reverence. Now, are there problems with governments? Absolutely, because they're run by sinful men and women. So there's always going to be problems. Usually the longer a government goes on, the more decline there is, the more corruption, right? And then what happens is the government gets out of the business of keeping the peace and having an orderly uh, civilization, but now they start legalizing and protecting certain sins and profane things, as we're starting to see. Uh, We also see that they uh, lose their way, right? That they pander to special interest groups. And then it becomes problematic. Then it just becomes a favors uh, thing with the government, and then you end up with $15 trillion of debt. We, debt. we just hit that mark. So that's a problem. But my question is, if we're going to complain, because I heard some grumbling, if we're going to complain about our government, are we praying for our government leaders? There's a challenge there. Not always an easy thing, right? Because of the impression of, of, the, of the government, whether it's both houses and, and the executive branch, the judicial branch, the, you know, it's, a, it's an issue, but it's something we need to do. Back then, they had to pray for the wicked Nero. He was an evil man. But what if Nero turned good and he stopped torturing Christians? Things would be a lot easier, wouldn't they? So kind of look at it that way. But it's another soul. It's another soul. The Apostle Paul basically says this is good and acceptable to God who desire all men to be saved, number one, and with that to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the understanding is, if we connect this, that our prayers and our behaviors as good citizens go a long way in winning the lost. Now, there are those who have an issue, and you know, I, I've had this discussion before about Romans 13 and government, and we really are supposed to be good citizens, and it really is a good witness. You know, sometimes the world sees the separatists, the weird groups, the, the cults, and, you know, they're shooting it out with the government and, and stockpiling sandbags, and, and it's just weird. That's not who we are. That's not who we are called to be. You know, some think it's cool to be rebels, free spirits, no restrictions, and they're in the church. Now, listen, it's kind of cool to be a rebel when you're in your 20s, but if you're still doing it in your 50s and 60s, it kind of looks weird. So it, maybe it's time to give it up, <laughs> you know? time to give it up. Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, A mediator. If you go all the way back into the Old Testament, arguably could have been one of the earliest books of the Bible in the book of Job, Job's sufferings, Job's restoration. Uh, In Job 9.33, when he was going through this difficult time, he was wondering and he uh, he was concerned that there was no mediator. You know, who will help me? You know, who will help me to plead my case to God and, and help us there to be some type of bridge? Well, thousands of years later... Christ came as that mediator. He opened the door to a relationship between a holy God, a just and righteous God, and sinful mankind. Now, this section naturally comes after prayer, doesn't it? Because who is our mediator? It's Christ, right? Some think that they uh, maybe pray to a, a relative that has passed on, or angels, or saints, or whatever the case may be. But the truth is, 
There is only one mediator, the scripture says, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, a mediator does what? So let's, let's break this down. They try to reconcile two parties. Right? Normally, each party gives a little. However, here's the impasse. Here's the rub, so to speak. That God is holy. God is righteous. Sins against him are offensive, and they must be deal with, dealt with. Now, sinful man can't pay the penalty, and sinful man can't stand before God on his own. The only thing he can default to is an eternity in hell. That's just what the scripture says. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. And we don't have to. Right? So what Jesus did was he did what no mediator in history ever did. He said, God, righteous, as the son of God. I know because we are one. God, righteous, the father, perfect, holy. Any type of sin needs to be dealt with. And he goes over here and he says, man, fallen rebellious, wants to go his own way, has free will, uses it for evil. There's quite a chasm there. There's quite an impasse. So what this mediator did, Christ, what no mediator would ever do, he got involved in the equation. He said, well, I want to bridge the gap between both, so what I'll do is I will pay for the penalty of sin on that cross, and I will pay the full price, so that even when Jesus was on the cross, And we covered in the resurrection, there was a moment of time where the father could not look at him because all that sin was was dumped on him. And don't ask me how it's done, but he did it. Uh, And the father was satisfied. It doesn't mean the father's mean. It means that the father is perfect. It means that when we think about God in a relational way and some of these books that really, you know, that really, the shack really bugs me, I got to tell you. Uh, You know, it's, it's really a problematic book. But... God is relational, but not the way they're making him relational, okay? He is a holy God. So Christ bridged that gap. He literally put his body over that chasm so that we we could walk over him and get to God. That's what he did for you and I. And even today, anyone here, maybe you walked in off the street, uh, and this stuff is, is, you're like, there's your answer. You're looking for answers? Here's your answers. And it says he paid the ransom. Now, the ransom in those days, the Romans, slavery was big business, The ransom was a price that you paid for a slave. So Jesus paid that ransom. In other words, we were slaves to sin. You don't think that you sin? Read the Ten Commandments. You don't think you've done any of the Ten Commandments? Think about if you've you've done them in your mind. Case closed. End of story. Jesus made that clear. So we do need a Savior. He paid that ransom for us. Verse 8. Therefore, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. There's that therefore again. Christ died on the cross. Christ was that mediator. Christ opened the door so that every person could be saved. So what happens? Remember, this is a church setting, pastoring the Ephesian church. Pastor Timothy, so what do we do now? Well, as church people, we don't just get concerned about our own salvation, but we should be concerned about everyone's salvation. So he's got some instructions for the men and some instructions for the women. So here's the instructions for the men. Number one, men should be praying everywhere or literally in every place. In other words, prayer should be a staple of our lives. For men, and I I fit into that category, prayer is not just when we come into church. It should be a part of who we are. Especially we should be praying with our family in our daily lives. Two, for men to lift up holy hands. 
Now, that was an understanding that the, that the hands were clean spiritually. Not that we don't have any sin, but that we're le- leading a clean life. Men, especially men in the church, brothers, we should be setting an example to not those just in the church, but to those outside of the church. Our co-workers, younger men who are, who are looking to us um, as, as you know, a role model, we need to set good examples. So he gave two positive examples. Now he's going to give two negative examples. The, f- the first one. Without wrath. Now this is translated, could be translated, violent passion. Passion is a good thing. I'm a very passionate person. Uh, but passion can also be a bad thing. So in other words, violent passion, passion in the wrong direction. You can think about a few of these. Instead of love, lust. Instead of love, wrath and hatred and anger or whatever the case may be. There's nothing impressive about, about a man who just follows his testosterone bursts. Let's just put it plainly. Can we control ourselves? Do we have self-control, men? The second one is without doubting. To go forth in faith and confidence in the Lord. No argument, no shirking our roles. To have responsibility, to be committed. Now, I've seen a flurry of articles lately, and it's just amazing. Every time that I study a particular subject, um, I'm going to talk about leadership. I'm going to talk about men's leadership in upcoming uh, sermons. A few articles, Washington Times. When manly virtue died, cultural forces are driving men away from traditional responsibilities. Fox News. Have we forgotten how to raise boys into men? Good article. Flurry of articles. That's a problem. See, what happens with, unfortunately, in our society, there's one or, one or two extremes, and there are some that fall in the middle. Two things, and neither is good. Number one, following violent passions, and we just read this. Young men who are just angry. They're out there, they're committing crimes, they're, they're abusing their, um, their spouses or whatever, just filled with anger or lust. There's nothing impressive about a man who can just go around and make babies. Anybody can do that. Animals do that. Now can you get married, make the commitment, and raise those children? Okay? Two, the other extreme is emasculated or lazy men. They follow their mommies, and then they follow their wives. A chief complaint that I hear about from godly women is, did somebody turn up the heat in here, or is it just me? I'm just kidding. <laughs> who envies me right now? <laughs> A few, few complaints that I've heard over the years from godly women is that their husbands are not leading, that their husbands are not taking the initiative, that their husbands are not making hard decisions, and they're making their wives do it, that their husbands are not protecting them, that they're spiritually lazy. Now let's go to the women in the church. Verse 9. In like manner also, so some of you have read ahead, I see, <laughs> That the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay, let's all close our Bibles. I'll see you next Sunday.
Pastor Paul is going to finish the rest of this. Where are you? (laughs) In like manner, both the women and the men in the church, remember, this was something new, Christianity. God had changed the dispensation. We were now in the age of grace, in the age of the church. So the churches were not like there was a church on every block. You might go, you might not find another church for 100 or so miles. So church hopping didn't really work. You had to make it work where you were. So you got to kind of bring yourself back 2,000 years and understand the dynamics of what was going on in the church. So that church in that community was a light. And it was supposed to set an example. The men were supposed to set an example and still should. And the women were supposed to set an example. Now I'll say this, that uh, Roman and Jewish culture at the time evolved to a point where it became staunchly patriarchal. You might find this interesting to know that Christianity actually liberated women. Number one, they were heroes in the Gospels. When it came to the resurrection, the men were hiding in the, in the room, and the women were at least going out to the tomb. Now, in that culture, that book wouldn't have sold very well. So it had to have been the truth, because nobody would have accepted that as women being the heroes, but they were. There were many female leaders in the church that the Apostle Paul names that helped him that were very good leaders. They were equals. So what happened? Well, if we cross-reference this with history and 1 Corinthians, we find that the pendulum swung completely the the other way. Uh, That newfound freedom that the women had caused others to stumble. I'll give you an example. When Paul took Timothy to witness to the Jews, Timothy was a grown man. He wasn't circumcised. Paul had Timothy circumcised. Did he have to? No. Paul spoke against circumcision, that, that, we, that the law, we, what was started in, in faith and started by the Spirit could not be completed in the law. Why did he have Timothy circumcised? Because being among Jewish men, it would have been a stumbling block. They weren't saved, remember. They wouldn't have been able to get over that if they had seen it. Um, so this is what you have here. So we had him circumcised. So that for, for the love of the unsaved Jews, this is what they needed to do. So let's go back to this. The first category is appearance. Now, similar to styles today, though some of the styles back then could have given the wrong impression. Remember, Ephesus was a pagan city. There was prostitution. There was uh, a lot of vices in the city. And they wanted to make sure that the line was not crossed to send the wrong message with style. Modesty, propriety, and moderation. Something fitting and appropriate for a house of worship. Now, even today... Enticement is not the order of the day in a church. A fashion show is for the fashion show and not necessarily for church. Now, don't get me wrong because we're not like the Amish. The Amish take the scripture and first uh, Peter and go so far to the other side that they say women should not wear makeup and not, they shouldn't even have a, a button or a snap on their dresses. I actually did a tour in Lancaster and I learned all this stuff. Uh, so they take it to the extreme and that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying at all. Also, what he's saying, if you read this, is that what you put on the outside should never be a substitute for inner character, right? Should never be a substitute for inner character. And I would say this, young ladies today, if you have to show your body to get a guy, he isn't worth it. He's not worth it. Because see, over years, over the years, for men and women, looks fade. And if we're in relation, a lot of laughs. (laughs) If we're in relationships purely based on appearances, that's going to start to wear off. Uh, could take a few decades, but it's going to happen. 
So it really has to come from inside. Now, from a police officer's perspective, ladies, and I've, I've heard this uh, talk done in, in a church, if you're trying to attract the guy that you're interested in, you're also attracting the pervert and the Megan's Law violator. Just keep that in mind. And as a police officer, I keep, I'm watching because I've been on patrol for 20 years. I watch the guys watching the girls sitting in the car, and I want to I know what's going on. And the girls just aren't paying attention. They're laughing, they're texting, and it's, it's not a good thing. I will tell you this, that society in Hollywood wants to put your daughters out there as fishing lures. It's, it's a big lie. It's satanic. They, they want to put these young girls out there to get your unwanted attention. And I'll leave you with this one last thought. That's just me. You know, maybe the, the job has jaded me, but I'm more of a protective type of person, even if it offends people. Even if my words are offensive, understanding where my heart is on this. Um, I checked with one of my detectives. I know that he went to a class on human, the sex slave trade, human trafficking in the United States. And he told me a story about the Russian mob in the United States that they go around and they look for girls that are drop-dead gorgeous. Go up to them, take them, put them in the van, not seen again. One girl actually made it for years after being trafficked. The NYPD busted a house in a, a house of prostitution in New York, and this girl, one girl, was saved, and she ended up now, she speaks to law enforcement about what they did. But they'll, they'll look just, it's not, it's not always a great thing to be the best-looking one in the crowd. So just keep that in mind. Keep in mind. Now, some of you are probably so happy, young ladies, that I'm not your father. <laughs> because I would be following you around in an unmarked car, you know? 24-7. <laughs> knew what he was doing by giving me a son. Listen, it's motivated out of love, trust me. Second category. Uh, we're going from appearance now to behavior. He says, let a woman learn in silence. Understand, in the King James, the word is, there's a word for charity, which really we don't understand charity the way they understood it back then. We understand charity, and the new translations say love. It's the same word, agape, but back in those days, charity had more of a giving aspect to it where it doesn't really so much in our culture. So when he says let a woman learn in silence, it doesn't mean be quiet, ladies. What it means is, the Greek also can mean stillness, not bustling, or not interrupting. Now, if you cross-reference 1 Corinthians, which I did a few years ago, there was an issue with, again, the newfound freedom, the pendulum swinging the other way, and some of the women in church were disruptive. So he had to, and then it was an issue with speaking in tongues and bursting out supposedly in the gifts of the Spirit, and they weren't done according to the way God would have it, and it became more of a, a, a circus. It became an emotional show. And Paul said, this, is, this has got to stop. We gotta, you know, there needs to be some more order in the service. Maybe not the way it was before, but it, this stuff has to come back. Now, he says that I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. The first word is didasco, where we get the word didactic in the English, to be teaching. So it's clear. Um, now, no matter how many, some try to massage the word, it's very clear. He doesn't permit a woman to teach or to have authority or usurp or dominate a man. The Bible lays out literally dozens of spiritual gifts, dozens, and women can hold all of them except for two venues. Not a big deal. We focus on this. Some people focus on it, but they shouldn't. There's only two restrictions. So women pastors, it's not appropriate. Um, I will say this. Men are called to be spiritual leaders in the church and at home. 
And a woman's frustration is usually where the man is not stepping up to the plate. And the woman will fill that void. We saw that in Genesis. We saw that with Adam. You know, what was he doing? What was he teaching her? She comes home, she t- has the fruit, and she probably shoves it in his mouth. He takes a bite. What was, what was he doing all that time? I will say this, that our society has it wrong. The Bible does not. Now, I've had this discussion with my wife, notwithstanding the biblical mandate, and she said she gave me many reasons that she laid out that she couldn't sit under a woman pastor. Okay? Now, the other extreme is to bring, again, the women back to where they have no purpose in the church. That's not biblical either. That's another extreme. The devil likes the extremes. You know, just go with what the Bible says. Number one, in Acts 18, Aquila and his wife Priscilla were a team. They sat with the mighty Apollos, who was a great preacher, very charismatic guy, was even overshadowing the Apostle Paul. They took him aside quietly after he was done preaching, and they sat him down and said, there's some things you need to learn. So his wife was also involved in that process of teaching Apollos. So she could teach, I guess, in a team type of uh, setting. In the scripture, we know Nabal and Abigail. Uh, Abigail disobeyed her husband to save the family because Nabal was a fool. He was an idiot. He had David so enraged that David was going to destroy his whole uh, family and, and his, probably his, take his goods and take his livestock. And Abigail disobeyed her husband and she saved the family. So this woman had a lot of wisdom. Uh, people ask me all kinds of questions. <laughs> Can my wife do the taxes? Sure, if she's better with money than you are, let her do the taxes. I mean, we can't take this stuff to an extreme. We've had women, women ushers in our church, women deacons. Uh, the discipleship class that we're going to have in the summer is going to be men and women. Women are leaders as well. Now, I would just say this. The temptation for a man, and I say that even today, is for a man to do less. And no man, and early in my marriage, I heard the word lazy a few times. <laughs> and yeah, men don't like that word. But sometimes if the shoe fits, wear it, wear it. So the man's temptation all the way back from Genesis is not to do enough, is not to protect our wives, is not to deal with the in-laws when they're acting up, is not to deal with situations, social situations where we can put our wife in an uncomfortable situation, is not to make hard decisions and dump it on our wives so that when everything goes wrong, she takes the blame. No, I'm the man. I'm called to take that blame. I'm called to protect my wife. Now, the temptation for the woman is to do too much is to see a little bit of a void and jump right in it. So the man's temptation is to do too little. The woman's temptation, and women make great leaders, is to jump right in there when that void is present. All right, both of those are problematic. My wife has often played I'm the weaker vessel card, you know? She'll take it and go, I'm the weaker vessel. Here, you make the decision. But it's all good. Yeah. Can we take, uh, you know... uh, can we take counsel from a wife? Absolutely. My wife, there would be times where I'd say, you know what? I'm going to say this. I'm determined. I'm going to go do this in, in a fit of frustration or whatever, anger. I'm going to do this. And she says, you know, you better pray about that. Why should I pray about that? And then she'll lay it out to me. And then I'll stop and think, wow, she really saved me from a train wreck. So uh, take it, uh, listen, take it in its context, right? All right, so moving on, he says that the order of creation is one of the things he points to, that Adam was formed first and given the divine mandate, and Eve was formed to be his helpmate, his teammate. Now, make no mistake, in plenty of times in the scripture, Adam 
is chastised for the, the problem of the fall of man. He takes the brunt of that responsibility. That's pretty sad. In the whole Bible, especially in the New Testament, he's known as the one who brought sin into the world. It doesn't say Eve. He took the responsibility. He had to as the first husband. And the Bible says there was a second Adam, Jesus, who, had, who, who reversed everything that the first Adam did. Right? And he was the one who brought us salvation and took the sin on, on him. Um, so understand that Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. So he bears that responsibility. Uh, Continuing on, it says that, now I looked at some of these translations. He he says, nevertheless, you will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I looked at some translations. I wanted to get this right. Um, I would just say that in this, the woman was deceived, in, in a sense, got the ball rolling. However, God used the woman to bring forth humanity. Out of a woman comes men and women, comes the race. Men can't do that. Um, Especially the woman, Mary, brought through the savior of the world. Joseph was was married to her, but he really had no physical um, part of that. He just was the one who stayed with Mary and helped to raise Jesus and then the other uh, brothers and sisters afterwards. So that's very honorable. Even in patriarchal societies, the woman has to be revered, even in pagan societies, because she gives birth. She gives birth to men and women, right? So it's very important. And she must continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. And these cannot be substituted with an exterior appearance, as we just read earlier. So there's things that the Apostle Paul asked Timothy to do that were very difficult in this troubled church. There's things that uh, that God asked the Apostle Paul to do that were also very difficult. Sometimes today I think there's an expectation on believers because we have freedom of religion and we live in the land of opportunity that things should be easier on us. No. There's going to be things that God asks us to do that are difficult. Now, if you're not a believer and you're hearing this and you're just going through your life maybe doing things that benefit you, this should pique your your interest or your curiosity because God wants to use you. Every person in this room, God wants to use, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from. And he can use you. But you have to allow him. And when God uses you, you may say, gee, I became a Christian. My life is more difficult than when I was a self-centered, self-serving pagan. Because God has a greater purpose. And he thinks that highly of you, that he wants to use you. So I would just want to encourage you that there's one scripture in Philippians 1.6 that says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Right. So whatever ordeal you're going through, I just want to encourage you through the word that you have the tools. Although this was uh, indigenous or uh, purported to a pastor and a struggling church, I think every single one of us can look at this and see how it can affect our life today and what we're going through and how God has a purpose for us that's greater than ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. We thank you for what you're showing us. We thank you for the applications that even thousands of years later.